Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message to all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality, for ultimate meaning and destiny in your lives. This is not to just believe in something. This is to find out what is real and believe in what is ultimate meaning and purpose. And so I want to refer all of those that are new to my website at ultimatemeaning.com. And there you're going to find a flip book that you can read, which is original writing by the gifting of the Spirit of God through me. And it answers many hard questions. There's a lot of print that's highlighted in red, and those are actually links to YouTube videos. Very profound and amazing YouTube videos that highly confirm from many fields of science and archaeology the reality of what I'm sharing here. So please check that out. I also have some videos up there now which go into more answers and are kind of like a documentary series exposing some of the helpless, hopeless, so-called scientific theories that people call fact these days that are far cry from that that are actually a mastery of deception. You will be amazed when you discover how you've been lied to because in these videos, the facts that are irrefutable are shown over and over again from many fields of science. So check that out. This message is for those that have come to know the one true God for whom to know is life eternal. And so I do briefly want to introduce who this one true God could only possibly be, which is explained in a lot more depth on my site that I just mentioned at ultimatemeaning.com. Evolution if applied to an infinite past or an extremely long past, should result in its maximum, shouldn't it? That maximum would be an ultimate order. An ultimate order so great that it would negate the need for time and chance and evolution. Because it certainly wouldn't have come out of some highly complex system like organisms that have reproduction. And of course, there are many other dimensions of existence that are far superior to the physical dimension. So I want to share with you this ultimate reality, the very source of the reason for all that exists, including you, and the only thing that will satisfy the very inner core of your being is when you have the very source of reality dwelling within your being. So what is this ultimate reality I am referring to? Well, if you go to the Bible and you read the Old Testament in the English versions, it uses the word Lord and God for the Hebrew words. Now, the Hebrew word that most often has the word Lord associated with it is the word Yahweh, also by some pronounced Jehovah, which is not as an accurate uh, pronunciation as they know these days. 
as Yahweh. In fact, there's even a savage hunting tribe. And this is in my book that I have on the afterlife titled Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable, which you can go on my website at Ultimate Meaning there under author's books. And there's a link there to that book on Amazon. But this savage tribe was great distances away from any influence from Christianity or Judaism throughout the distant centuries of the past. And yet, they had prophets that prophesied for hundreds of years that eventually a white man would come and bring to them the lost book of God. In fact, one of their prophets prophesied that the man with the lost book of God has arrived and we are to saddle and on a don we are to take a donkey and follow it and wherever the donkey goes follow it and they followed it for 200 miles and it came into the village a particular village after they went through very difficult terrain and everything and it walked up to a well and stood in front of the well and as they looked into the well, a man with white skin came out of the well. The first man with white skin they probably ever saw, if I remember right, that is the case. They immediately asked him, are you the man that has the lost book of God? And he said, yes, I am. Well, that savage tribe, multitudes of them came to Christ after that. And that's a true story. It actually happened. You, can find the links to it on the internet and so on. I don't have this stuff right here, but that's an example. That word that they used in that savage tribe for God was Yahweh. Many savage tribes around the world have the record of Adam and Eve in their traditional songs and how they fell from God. Many, many savage tribes in every part of the world have in their traditional songs and folklore and so on about the worldwide flood. And this was before any missionaries ever were around. This, this book that has all of these descriptions of these savage tribes, I forget the name, it's a very big book. These people went and did this before any missionaries went around the world to any of these places and studied these tribes. So there's some examples. I wasn't planning to share all this, but every message is different. And I'm here just to speak whatever God leads me to speak. Now, I want to share with you that the way I do these messages is I seek to allow God to speak through me. And that's because the Word of God says in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. But before I go on and explain that, I should tell you that I did promise you I would briefly describe who the one true God could only possibly be. The only source of reality or, the, or a quality that is the opposite of corruption is an ultimate perfection of love. And I need to define what that is, but before I do, I want to define what 
the word truth means. The word truth, if you look it up in various dictionaries, means that which is real or reality. You look up the word reality in various dictionaries and it means that which is indestructible, immovable, unchangeable, absolute. So this is reality, an indestructible quality. That can only be found in an ultimate perfection of love. And this is how I would define this love. It is a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. Now, I mean, I could go and define what good is too in detail, but what's the point? You basically know what good is. It's certainly something that's very pleasurable and fulfilling, but it's something, ultimate good is something that is pleasurable and fulfilling that doesn't ever decrease, but ever enlarges in fulfillment without end. This love always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. It is so pure in its integrity that as it were, it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love. Oh, there's filial love described in the Bible, which is the feeling love, and there's eros love, which is the sexual love. But the highest is agape love, this love that always chooses the highest lasting good. Obviously, any, any lesser choice would have a measure of corruption in it. This love is the opposite of corruption. In fact, it is the very destroyer of corruption. Corruption is the opposite of good. It corrupts good. It causes goodness to be dissipated to nothing. And let me point out to you that the second law of thermodynamics and science, which is observed in the whole universe, says that anything left on its own will always go in a direction of more and more disorder to complete chaos. And yet here we are from an infinite past, for there is no beginning, for something had to exist without beginning, for us to exist. In the infinite past, we should have come to disorder in the infinite past. It should have happened billions of years ago, but here we are in a highly organized world with amazing design and cells that is way more complex than man can ever produce. One little cell has mechanisms in that that are way beyond any capability of man. Why even DNA now, they discovered when you put a this was Lutmonte or something. It's on my flip book there that I told you about. He put, you know, in the test tube, he put um, DNA in one test tube and in the other test tube, no DNA at all, just plain water. Those two test tubes were close to each other and the DNA from the test tube that had the DNA sent communication waves into the other test tube and created DNA. And yet man can't even assemble DNA when there's DNA in the water. This one had total DNA in it that it assembled and created. This totally blows away the theory of evolution, this one fact. And of course, I could go on 
get carried away on a tangent and all the stuff that I've written in my book, which is 368 pages, Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable. A very interesting and amazing book. On all the irrefutable, strongest empirical evidence there is. Because so many people die. And they're known to be totally dead, some for two hours. And when they come to, they tell the doctors, you are saying this and this, and you did this and this, when they know there's no way they could have known. And this repeats itself over and over, which is very strong empirical evidence. So there is a creator, there is a God. And this God, first of all, has a love that is so pure it will not tolerate corruption. And he created us with the capacity to love, not as machines that just have the input of man or knowledge from some other source. No, we were created with the capacity to love, with a soul. We are self-originating with the capacity to love. We are self-responsible. We can't blame God for creating the devil. These are beings that are the source of their own action that can love, that have the potential of choice. But with the potential of choice comes the potential to make choices that are corrupt in rebellion against this ultimate perfection of love. And so, the negative symbol represents an indestructible foundation, this reality that I'm talking about, this love that's so pure. That's the negative symbol, the negative and positive symbol of nature. What's amazing that God is so great that he can communicate with all the things he's created, no matter how insignificant they are. After all, he is God. And we limit him, say, oh, how could God come down and become a human being? Wow, are you kidding? Is that your limited view of God? No, he is so great that he did and does come in human form. In fact, for God to be almighty, he must be in personage in the three ultimate aspects of existence. Therefore, he must be in three personages. What are the three ultimate aspects of existence beyond creation, beyond time and space? As God the Father. Second aspect is in the creation realm, in the time and space realm, in the multifaceted dimensions of existence. The third dimension being a very low, inferior dimension compared to the fourth all the way up to the tenth dimension that most scientists believe in nowadays from the study of particle physics. And then there's omnipresence, God filling all things as the spirit. So you have God in personage or in conscious intelligent rule as the father beyond time and space, seeing the end from the beginning, as the son entering into the creation realm to fellowship with it, to experience it and its limitations, and in omnipresence, it's the Holy Spirit attached to every particle of existence. And so only in that aspect could God be almighty. But I want to talk about the second aspect of this love. I've talked about its integrity to not condone what is contrary to this ultimate perfection of love. But the other aspect of this love is that it is so great that God could and always did have 
the reality in his being, not only the capacity, but the very reality, so that it actually happened in the infinite past, that God always had in his being this quality that could take judgment upon himself for the creature, such as we in this physical dimension. He could become a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice. That's how great his love is. And he did in Jesus Christ on the cross. He humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. And he suffered more than you, a mere creature, on the cross. That's amazing. You just take that in. And here's the thing. The people that have died and gone to heaven, highly confirmed to have been dead, which are in my book and which you can see if you go to my website at ultimatemeaning.com, people like Dean Braxton, B-R-A-X-T-O-N, just type in N-D-E, standing for near-death experiences and his name. These people and many others that have been entered heaven as well, just like him, like Dale Black and others, they all say that they experienced such an intensity of love when they were standing before Jesus Christ that it was like they were the only one he loved in the whole universe and like they were the apple of his eye. And that the love was so intense that they knew that if he only created them, he would have humbled himself more than them and suffered more than them on the cross just for them. That is the love God has for you. Why would you reject that? Because you can choose to repent and be reconciled to God by just crying out and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so this is good news. And I'm here to share with you that good news. And so the other aspect of this love is represented in the positive symbol, which is the crossing out of the negative symbol, the ultimate positive. And isn't it amazing that even in the most ancient alphabets that go back to 1500 B.C., 2000 B.C. and earlier, the last letter is exactly in the shape of the cross as we know it today. And it means sign or symbol. How wonderful. The symbol of the cross represents a love that cannot be imagined that could be greater. A love that could not exist that could be greater. Only this love could be what is worthy to be ultimately trustworthy, to contain unlimited life and power and authority without using it in a corrupt way or being corrupted by it, thus indicative of being the very source of who only the one true God could possibly be. And we will all be judged on whether we choose to receive or reject this ultimate manifestation of love we can choose to receive forgiveness and cleansing and find a life that's even far more abundant than this world on con that is unconditional of our circumstances. So that if we are tortured to death like, or almost like Brother Young, the heavenly man, look him up. He's on my website. There's a link there on the homepage. tortured for 10 years by the Chinese Communist Party, and I could go into the amazing story of his life. He experienced such abundance of a relationship with God, despite all of that suffering he went through. 
that was far transcendent. There's nothing more fulfilling than coming into a love relationship with the Creator. But the secret is that once you've received Him, as you've received Him in, in a, with a true heart, so also to abide in Him and to grow in that abiding relationship. And so I am here, and I know I talk longer than I planned to, but that's the way it goes. And I mentioned 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So I will seek to speak and allow God to speak through me. That's the way everyone should be coming together in church services. They all should have the freedom to be able to share as the Spirit moves upon them to share as the Spirit rises in them to share what word is coming out of them, whether it's a testimony or a song or a prophetic word or a word of encouragement or exhortation or whatever it is. And yet it's lacking. But God is going to bring a new order into the church. And that will certainly be one thing that will be in this. The members of the body fully functioning as God has intended it should be in his not hierarchy of corrupt religious churches that don't know God, but his church that is around the world where people truly know him and have a relationship with him. I am wanting to now share with you that I also cast lots in order to get the possibility of any two chapters in the word of God. And I do it with great reverence before God and pray in a particular way which I won't go into and um, separate those applications from all defilement afresh each day and so I use two applications to get the possibility of any chapter in the word of God so that I get two chapters that would bear witness with each other as to the theme as to the message and then I spend a half an hour meditating and I preach and so that's what I'm going to do today I'm going to preach from these two chapters, I don't know what I'm going to share, but time and time again, there's a common theme. And so I will be sharing that today. But before I do, I also cast by lot a song to get the song that God has chosen out of 144 songs that I have on my website and both sites now at ultimatemeaning.com and loverealize.com where all my messages are. And so I will, um, first of all, play that song that I got today. And uh, so we'll go with that right now. Here we go.
wonderful. How wonderful. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, my. How wonderful that is. To know him being worked into our lives. His indwelling, as Christ said, whoever believes with their life into me out of their innermost being would flow rivers of living water. Indeed, we experience it to be so. That there's this invisible river, this soothing river that animates with joy and love and all the fruits of the Spirit. Especially, there are times when God goes out of his way when sometimes we don't expect it to fill us with his presence and his peace. Sometimes we might be at the darkest moments in our lives where it doesn't seem he's around, even in our prayer time sometimes. And then suddenly, it's like the light breaks through the clouds and the presence of God floods your inner being and you're filled with illumination to see with the eye of your heart the reality, the, some aspect of the glory of God or of his kingdom. Well, I want to share with you what I received today by the casting of Lot and yesterday as well because I am not preaching every day. And so sometimes I like to include what God has been saying throughout the last few days. And so I do want to point out what I received yesterday on Monday, April the 24th. Now I'm not planning to preach on this, <clears throat> but I received Isaiah 9 and 1 Kings 5 by the casting of Lot. And both of these chapters are about building their own government and the kingdom and the kingdom of God in contrast with the government of man. Both of these chapters have that in them. So I don't want to share too much about that, but I have highlighted the verses in green that were similar in topic. It's amazing how God does this by the casting of Lot. The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and join his enemies together. So this is Israel. They're in rebellion against God. They're corrupt, just like it's happening around the world and so many nations nowadays, people in positions of government and leadership, somehow over time have been totally corrupted by greed, by money. They're no longer interested in serving the people, even though the government is supposed to be by the people and for the people. And so they still think that they're going to, with all their corruption and disobedience to God, Say, oh, okay, we had all of these things destroyed. Now we're really going to build and we'll be, but they're not repenting. They're not turning to God. They're not repenting of the corruption in their lives. And of course, in this chapter, there's an amazing prophecy in Isaiah 9. And this is describing the kingdom of God, really in contrast to the kingdom of man. And so beginning in verse 4, we have a prophecy that goes into the future of the last days. After God reproving Israel, I believe, in the first four verses there. I could bring it up, I suppose, but I don't think it's worth it for time. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. 
the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian, this is speaking of Israel, has been oppressed in the last days. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. And then it says this, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. I mean, this is a prophecy given many hundreds of years ago before Christ came, over, seven, well, over 700 years ago, before he came to the earth. And it's saying right here that you will be called the mighty God. The son that is born, that is given, will be called the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. It's going to go on forever. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And it goes on, and I will just touch on these chapters here before I get on to what I have for today. So with that casting of Lot, we also had in 1 Kings 5, 3 to 5, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build an house unto the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God, or Yahweh my Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's what it literally, well, it doesn't use the word Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's Yahweh the Almighty's, which is referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, hath given me rest in every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil, O current. And behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son whom I will set upon thy throne and thy room, he shall build an house unto my name. And indeed, this was a very majestic temple that was built unto the Lord and the other houses that Solomon lived in and so on. But as we know, Solomon was corrupted by women and fell from a close relationship with God because these women took his heart away from the one true God into idolatrous gods. And uh, I hope and believe and pray that Solomon did repent before he went into that great transition from his physical body into the far superior dimension that I know about from all my research on life after death. Now today, so what is God saying here? First of all, before I go on to today, because the messages I had before this that I just shared with you were all on the soon return of Christ. And that went on for about three days when I cast lots. I got chapters on the soon return of Christ, like Matthew 24, um, Revelations chapter 6, I remember there's a good number of them, that came out every single day with chapters for about three days that were on the soon return of Christ, Ezekiel 38 and so on, many of those. And so then the Lord is emphasizing, yes, I'm returning soon, 
but it is time for my spiritual temple to be restored. The institutions of man are crumbling because of corruption in high places. And God says in his word that in the last days he will shake all things that are shakable, that what's unshakable might remain. And what will remain is the kingdom of God. And it ends in a massive earthquake around the world that causes all the skyscrapers around the world to crumble. To the ground. Of course, it's described in many verses in Revelations. It's described in many verses in Isaiah and other prophetic books on the return of Christ. And of course, with that return, the glory of God fills the air and there's a brightness and a glory and also the wicked, when they breathe the air and are just consumed to ashes because the presence of God is filling the air. That's going to happen soon. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens in the next 10 to 20 years. Wouldn't surprise me at all. The way things are going, that is what I would say would be probably the time when all of this happens, is about 20 years from now at the most. But again, I can't say for sure. Now, I want to share with you, in relation to God wanting to restore his spiritual temple. You know what the word of God says. It says that we are to be his spiritual temple as living stones built together for inhabitation of God through the spirit. God wants a bride upon the earth. His ultimate purpose is to be married to his creation in a deep, intimate love relationship. Not just with human beings. There's also many other creations such as angels. And there are multitudes of varieties of angels in heaven. And there's also many varieties of creations of animals and so on. And also there is indication from the people that have died, including Christians, of creations on other planets. But that's another thing for another time. I want to share with you what he is sharing here today by his spirit to the body of Christ. And so, I received today, by the casting of Lot, Leviticus 25 and Song of Solomon, chapter 8. It shouldn't say chapter 5 there. Somehow I mistyped it. It wasn't chapter 5, it was chapter 8 I received by the casting of Lot. And so that's what I meditated on. Um... Both these chapters are about liberation, about God wanting to have a place of rest with his people. King David said that he would give his eyes no rest until he found the place of God's rest a place where God could dwell in habitation with his people, in communion with his people. And of course, we know that when that temple was built by Solomon, and they all came to consecrate it unto God, and, and Solomon prayed a powerful prayer before God. 
that the glory of God came down and filled the presence like a shining cloud of glory and people could not even stand because of the glorious presence of God that came down into their midst. And many times when this has happened and they had the sacrifices represented as atoning sacrifices for sin, but ultimately recognizing God is only the source of forgiveness, they had those sacrifices. The presence of God would burn the sacrifice. Of course, that happened with Elijah. That's another amazing account. So we have in Leviticus the description of the year of Jubilee and of Jubilation and all that is involved with the Jubilee. And I may bring up the scripture as well to read that in more detail. But first, I want to point out what the Song of Solomon is about. I only put down here, it's abbreviated song, but it's titled Song of Solomon. This is describing a beautiful love relationship between Solomon and his wife that he's just being before they were married and as they're brought into marriage. It's very beautiful language that some people might even call sensual, but it's not really sensual. It is describing spiritual realities. And so I do want to touch on this and, and go into it um, as God re has re will illuminate me as I speak here. And I'm just praying that I stay in a heart set and a mindset of worship here because it says in the word of God, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is out of worship that the spirit of prophecy flows or that God flows through us to speak beyond ourselves. And so I am in that heart set and mindset of worship as I am speaking here. And I want to first touch on before I go into the Song of Solomon, more on Leviticus 25, which I have here before me now. And, you know, I can't read everything in Leviticus 25. It's a lot of detail, but it's basically this understanding, is that every seventh year they were to not do anything to their crops. They were just to let them be there. They could go and pick the fruit off them for their daily, whatever they wanted for a meal and so on. But they weren't to do any trimming of the vines or whatever. No work. The crops rested every seven years. And the poor were allowed to pick from them and so on and so forth. And God said that he would cause the sixth year to produce three years so that when you obeyed the Lord and you didn't do anything in that seventh year, you'd have enough to go to the ninth year from the sixth year. And indeed, these things also happened to the children of Israel when they had manna. Um, God would allow it on the sixth day to be enough so that they didn't have to gather manna on the seventh day. And indeed, they it wouldn't be there on the seventh day. And that went on in the wilderness for some time. This amazing phenomena. But when it came to the 49th 
cycle of seven-year Sabbaths, that was a jubilee. And in that jubilee, it describes here that the economy was based on the jubilee. If you had land and you had fruit in that land, you would give a person so much money for that fruit that you reaped from that piece of land each year. But the value increased each year up to the 50th year. When the 50th year came, then, for example, if you fell into debt and you couldn't pay your debt, and so you lost your land, then you received your land back. And then the value went down to 1 50th of what it would be, for example, if you went 25 years, it would be worth $25,000, let's say. Whereas in the first year, it would be worth $1,000, all the way up to $50,000. And that's how this economy worked. But what you see described here in the Jubilee is the understanding of an appointed time for liberation, for everyone to be free, which represents the appointed time for the husband to be married to his wife. The Sabbath represents God's enjoyment of his creation. Remember, God chose, represented in six days to work, but on the seventh day he rested. But it wasn't a rest of just ceasing from work. It was an enjoyment of what he created, as it were a marriage with his creation, it being brought to that place of perfection. And the word of God says in Hebrews 4, likening the Sabbath to this, it says that we are to labor to enter the rest, for there is a rest for the people of God, and he that has entered that rest has ceased from his works, even as God did from his. And that cessation involves the enjoyment of consummate marriage, so to speak, with your creator, if you're the creature, obviously. And so we have a description here that aligns with the description in the Song of Solomon, a beautiful description in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. And so I want to read the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Oh, that thou wert as my brother. Now, this is the coming, the lover of Solomon before she's married. She's saying, Oh, that thou wert as my brother, that sucked the breasts of my mother. When I should find thee without, I would kiss thee. Yea, I would not be despised. I would leave thee and bring thee into my mother's house. Who would instruct me, I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of, of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand should be under my head, and his right hand should embrace me. So she's imagining here, out of her delight, she, she wants to marry Solomon. She delights in, in Solomon, which is 
a symbolic representation of God, who is the bridegroom, who seeks to be married to his corporate bride, the church, not some hierarchical organization, but the living corporate organism of the body of Christ. For example, there's the persecuted underground church in China, which numbers in, way, I think it's way over 200 million now. I forgot exactly what it is there. But it's those that really know God, that are led by the Spirit of God, that have been truly born again of the Spirit of God so that they are not motivated or controlled by the natural realm. There is something far superior that motivates them. It says those that are born again are not born of the will of man or of blood lineage. In other words, our identity isn't in who we were brought up by. That's not what motivates us because my parents believe this and this. No, it's the reality of a relationship with God that motivates us. We don't put our identity in our lineage. We don't put our identity in what pleases people. We are led by the Spirit of God. We are not controlled by the natural, inferior, physical dimension. And so here in this passage, this lover is saying, oh, I just long for this, be able to just be intimate with the bridegroom. I want this intimacy. I look forward to the time will I, when I will experience such an intimacy. Brothers and sisters, right now in our lives, we have not entered into anywhere near the reality of love relationship with God that we will experience when we enter into the kingdom of heaven, as some people that have died, many people that have died have experienced. And of course, you can watch some of this in my flip book. I have links to some people that have died. And certainly in my book, if you purchase it, and the link to it is on the author's book link on the top menu on ultimatemeaning.com and loverealize.com. But you can discover this, this realm of love with God is in a dimension so much more superior and real than this physical dimension and of a love that's so way beyond anything that can be put in earth language. It is so great. And yet here we get a foretaste of that love of God because we do experience his presence in us. But here is what, and so we have this longing, even myself, I long to experience far more in this life, not in the next, in this life of intimate fellowship with God. But there is always that element where there has to be a moral persuasion in who God is. The word Faith from the Greek word in the Greek New Testament is the word pistis. And that basically means a moral persuasion in who God is. And the Hebrew word is amen for faith. That's one of the main words. It basically means the same thing. A persuasion in who God is that can be illustrated in the sense that if there's a terrible flood or a storm and this, true, this tree has roots, it may have the trunk literally broken off but the roots are still there and they sprout again. That kind of moral persuasion in God. 
It says that our faith is to be as a grain of mustard seed that is the smallest of all grains, and yet when it grows, it becomes this enormous tree that provides shade for many, and yet it was so insignificant and small. But the mustard seed represents something that can grow in the most harsh condition. It has life in it, even in the desert, to sprout and to grow into something great. And the life that has been imparted into us has birthed a faith in us that can have a moral persuasion in God that even when we are going through trials and it seems like God is far away and we hardly feel his presence, we know there is a time going to come if we persevere. Sometimes it's just a short trial. Sometimes it can be a longer trial. But there comes the place of resurrection for out of death comes life. Death works in us, Paul said, that life might work in you. There is a principle in the body of Christ that when we are deeply knit together in the love of God, that knitting causes us to be aware of our brothers and sisters so that when one member suffers, we suffer with them. I have literally experienced this where I didn't know that a certain brother or sister was suffering, but I could feel a burden for them and tears for them. And I started to pray because I was knit together in love by the Spirit for them. I have experienced where there's deep knitting together and love relationships in the body of Christ, that there are times when I am being under attack by the enemy and where I am feeling so like even humbled. God has to humble us many times because there's this innate tendency of pride. And I would feel like just so weak and, and as it were, barren. And my brother would be rejoicing and being blessed. And then I would notice the next time it was the opposite. I was experiencing such an outpouring of the presence of God. And they were going through a trial. But in all these things, as we are knit together in the body of Christ in love, there comes a greater and greater love among us all. It causes us to know things that we don't know any. We, do, we no longer look at people by outward appearance. We know them by the Spirit, as it says in the Word of God. Henceforth we know no man after the flesh. Even though we knew Christ after the flesh, henceforth we know him no more. We know him after the Spirit. We come into a dimension of love with God and with each other that causes a corporate body to be formed in local assembly, that causes the living stones to come together and the glory and presence of God to come to the place where it can rest in our midst. And I'm hardly beginning in this to preach on it because the next thing we read here in this Song of Solomon, in this love relationship is this, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up nor awake my love until he please. So right now she's aware that he is not there for her yet. He has not decided to choose her. But she's expecting that choice will happen. And she doesn't want 
it to be forced. She's told her friends, I really love him. I really love him. Oh, we'll get him. We'll prod him. We'll get him for you. No, don't do that, she says. I want it to truly be that he loves me, that he sees me for the beauty that's in me. He must see, I must know that he really loves me. And this is also an important thing that we must learn, brothers and sisters. That we do not try to be manipulated in our relationship with God. That we don't try to work things up, try to psych things up, or, or think that maybe something's going to happen if we get people to pray for this or that. We need to know that our own hearts are at a place of rest in God, where we've learned to trust him. Instead of strive, what did I say? The verse says, labor to enter the rest. For he that has entered that rest has ceased from his own works as God did from his. There is the natural tendency in us to start out in our own self-sufficiencies. And then God puts us into circumstances where we're broken, like a horse that's bucking, bucking the rider. We're broken in to a point where we enjoy being the horse and being steered by the rider who is representative of God. And in this passage of scripture here, as we continue to read, it says, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? A wilderness represents trial. God is putting his people through the wilderness of testing. But it's the wilderness of testing and trial that Israel went through in the desert, that we all go through, that the patriarchs went through, like Joseph and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Look at the kind of lives, they, the trials they went through before they entered into that deep relationship with God. It says of Joseph, until his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. And songs. Indeed, there's that longing for this, this ultimate relationship, not only in the world to come, but now that we enter into such a close union with God, that we come to that place where our light shines bright to bring many unto Christ, and where the works of our hands are established, not of our own sufficiency, but of God that bear as much that is truly everlasting fulfillment. To see lives changed in this present world, brought out of darkness into light. But we go through trials and tests in this life, and we learn through it to come into a place of deep union and fellowship with him. And so here you have the bridegroom coming out of the wilderness, Leaning upon her beloved, I raised thee up under the apple tree. There my mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. 
And then it says these amazing words here. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals are of her coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. This is talking about a love for her bridegroom that is so strong, and the bridegroom having such a jealous love for the bride that they will do anything. They will pay any price, including death itself. They will not, they will be willing to die because they love their lover so much. They're willing to literally die. That's the love they have. It's a jealous love. God says that he is jealous in his love for his people, even a consuming fire of love. He is jealous that we become those that know a love relationship with him. And we go on and we read here, many waters cannot quench love. This is talking about the influences of this life that can drown us in busyness, that can drown us in the cares of this life so that we lose the life of God and we, we drown and we become those that are lost. Many waters cannot quench love. When we have the love of God in us, those floods can't drown us. Neither can the floods drown it. When we cultivate God's love in our heart, this agape love that always is so pure, that is willing to deny self to love others, even if they're hard to love, this agape love cannot be quenched. It says here, if a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly condemned. Hallelujah. Oh, this blesses me so much reading this. We have a little sister and she hath no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. If she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. This is what the love of God does. And then she says, I'm a wall. That's all I was. I was this little sister that had no breasts. But I did not hide myself, I made my need known to God. I allowed myself to be vulnerable and I shared my faults with my brothers and sisters. What does the word of God say? It says that we're to share one another's faults and to pray for one another that we may be healed. And that's spiritually healed and physically healed. If we cannot humble ourselves before God and acknowledge our need and our helplessness, and if we cannot humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters and go up to them and say, forgive me, I sinned against you, I was wrong, even though they may have offended us worse, in order out of love to try to bring them 
closer to God. This is what God is saying here. He wants us to have a love to, as it were, wash one another's feet, even the ones that are difficult to love, to go to them and seek to see what is good in them and cultivate it like this wall. This wall. Oh, hallelujah. How wonderful this is. And God says here that when we have this kind of love, this is, watch what happens here. So she's this wall. What does it say next? Oh, it's so wonderful. I'm just trying to spot it. I'm a wall and my breasts are like towers. I become beautiful. Then was I in his eyes as one that found favor. You see, there's an appointed time of rest. There's an appointed time of marriage, of consummation. There's the year of jubilee. God wants us as his people to learn, to lay down our tendencies in our own sufficiency to build our own what perceptions of what we think will please God. Even that can be a deception. If it's out of our own pride and self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. He wants us to learn to keep the Sabbath, which the word Sabbath means cessation, to cease from our own tendencies to initiate things, to be presumptuous, and go ahead without asking God. Just assume, well, this I think, oh, wow. Yeah, how many times I go ahead and do things without asking God? I become presumptuous. The root of presumption is pride often. Even men that were great men of God, that were powerfully used of God, like one of the kings, was it Jehoshaphat? I forget which king it was. I think it was not Jehoshaphat, but another king. I've forgotten his name at the moment. He was so powerfully used of God, and then he became so presumptuous that he thought God, he could go into the temple and offer a sacrifice, an incense to God when it wasn't his office. And the priest withstood him, and as they withstood him and told him, it's not your position to do this. God never ordained you to do this. He was angry with him and then leprosy rose right up in his face and he ran out himself and he was a leper the rest of his life. God had to humble him. And I'm sure he was very repentant and ended up in heaven in a wonderful place with God, but he had to go through that humbling. It's so easy to enter into pride and to be presumptuous. But here we see that the Lord is wanting us to come to that place where we are ready as individuals to have an amazing encounter with him, but also as assemblies in these last days. You know, I've written a book titled God, Headship, and Body Invasion. It's all, it's about 250 or more pages in a large uh, six by nine paperback, and you can get it in Kindle, of course as well as my other book, Afterlife, Incredible, Irrefutable. Everything that you need to do in your assembly so that you do not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting your local assembly. 
One of the things we don't know these days is we don't know what it is to wait on God. It says to be still and know I am God. There are times when we wait on him where we're just in awe of whose presence we're in, where we sensitize ourselves to whose presence we're in. And yes, there's a time when you've waited on God, where the Spirit of God begins to move on you. But I've seen so many churches, they try to initiate this. They're like the throng that came before Christ. Here there's this woman. She has this infirmity. And she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And she knows that because she's unclean, it's against Jew Jewish ceremonial law to touch him. And she's willing to, to pay that price, to do anything. And she goes there to touch him. But the crowd is thronging, is thronging, is thronging him. And this woman touches him. And Christ said, who touched me in the midst of a crowd that's thronging him and touching him all the time? Who touched me? I felt virtue come out of my body the virtue of the Spirit of God, and heals someone who touched me. And he turns around and sees this woman that literally risked her life to do that. Risked, or at least her reputation, and she was made whole. She learned the secret. The secret is not to throng God in an assembly and to hype things up. It is to learn to have the awe of God and the fear of God. This is something he wants to restore in the last days that is so missing from the body of Christ. Where there is the genuine fear of God in an assembly, there is sensitivity to the Spirit of God to know when to move in worship, in praise, even in dance before God. But you don't just try to hype things up or to work things up. You are sensitized to the moving of the Spirit. I've been in congregations where it's almost like they expect you to dance. I don't dance just because they're dancing. No, I will never do anything unless I know it's out of a pure heart and I sense the Spirit rising up in me to do it. I've been in congregations where they're more sensitive to the Lord. And then the Spirit would move me to dance. In my natural self, I would never dance. But I was dancing in circles. There's the balance. There's great liberty. But there's great awe. And there's great reverence. And there's great sensitivity. And that is something that needs to be restored in the body of Christ. Oh, I'm preaching a long message, I know. Let me finish this. So she is now being loved by Solomon and experiencing marriage with Solomon. Solomon had a vineyard at Baalheim and he let it out, let out the vineyard on the keepers, every one, for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand and those that keep the fruit thereof, two hundred. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to thy voice. Cause me to hear it. Oh, she's longing to hear the voice of her beloved. Oh, to bring us into that place of intimacy where we can be more and more in tune 
with the voice of the Almighty's, with the voice of Yahweh the Almighty's, the voice of the Spirit, the voice of Jesus Christ, the voice of the Father. Make haste, my beloved, be thou like to the roe, or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. So here we have her as the lover saying, Oh, come to me and be full of life towards me. Dance with me. Jump with me like the heart. <clears throat> well, that is what God is wanting. He's wanting his people to become his bride. And he's calling us forth to be that temple, that habitation of God through the Spirit, the place of his rest. And may it be that soon there will be a powerful visitation of God that will be not a revival, but far more than a revival. The restitution of all things is prophesied in the book of Acts, whom the heavens must receive till the restitution of all things, a new order that will not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting local assemblies in these last days. For that to happen, brothers and sisters, there's a price to pay, and it's well worth it. May we catch the vision. This is what will conquer our nation and turn it from the terrible, oppressive tyranny that is now happening in almost every nation of the world. And this corruption is now being exposed. And may what will overthrow it more than anything is when the body of Christ wakes up and becomes who they have been called to be and enters into cooperating with God's ultimate zeal and desire, which is a corporate bride in assembly around the world that will fulfill John 17, that will fulfill Ephesians chapter 4, and the verse I quoted of Jesus Christ, of whom it says, whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things. So thank you for listening to this message. Thank <laughs> you.